0: Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, F.P.'s economics podcast. Every week we take data and we use it to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, F.P.'s deputy editor, with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, F.P.'s economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. Our data point this week is 157. That is the number of tanks that the West has agreed now to send to Ukraine in its war with Russia. Tonight, in a major reversal, President Biden announcing he's sending 31 powerful American Abrams tanks to Ukraine. It's been hailed as a turning point in the war. Washington says the 31 Abrams tanks promised to Ukraine are the most capable in the world. After weeks of pressure from Western allies, Germany announcing this morning it will send those Leopard 2 tanks to the war zone Joining the United States in doing so, our Fred Flighton joins us live. In. That is the product of very long-running and pretty protracted negotiations among the various countries involved, specifically Germany and the United States, which went down to the wire this week in sort of horse trading over the conditions under which they'd be sending tanks to Ukraine. A deal finally did get worked out, but we thought we'd kind of look under the hood, as it were, and try to discuss the economics of the tank more generally. So Adam, first to set the military context here, just a basic question, what is the military significance of tanks to begin with? I mean, we've sent a bunch of war machines to Ukraine, so that's nothing new. We've sent other armored vehicles even. So what is it that tanks distinctively do that these other machines don't or can't?
1: I mean, the world of military equipment right now is incredibly fluid. But but classically, you would say that what a tank can do um, is take ground. It's an offensive weapon for the conquering and then holding of territory. So it's not it has firepower like artillery or air power, for instance, Um, but um, it's on the ground, um, you know, on its tracks, uh, crunching its way through the terrain. I mean, it has armor, but it's far more heavily armored than um, an armored personnel carrier or uh, an armored harvester would be. I mean, they're designed to withstand a little bit of shrapnel or a machine gun fire, uh, or even maybe 20, 20, 20 millimeter fire. But uh, a modern battle tank is, you know, has ultra sophisticated armor which allows it to withstand, at least notionally, hits by massive, you know, uh, modern um, anti tank rounds um so it has it has um it's on the ground it has it has armored protection and it has a gun uh, a very very powerful armament um standard nato would be 120 millimeter cannon um which can fire a shell going at about a mile a second or in a on a straight trajectory so this isn't like a an indirect fire weapon, like an artillery weapon, you you point the gun at what it is you want to kill and pull the trigger, and a second later it explodes into pieces um, at huge distances, like kilometers away. And that's what that's really what makes tanks um, key is that they can maneuver under fire because they're protected. They can maneuver fast and over all terrain, and um, they have incredible hitting power themselves. Often with machine guns as well and various types of grenade launchers and so on. Um, so that's what, that's what makes them distinctive. Um, but, but it's worth saying that they, they never really sensibly operate in isolation, right? This is the standard lesson of all armored warfare is that it's incredibly dangerous to use tanks in isolation. They need the protection of the range of other troops. They need the heavy duty firepower that artillery can provide. They need the long range firepower of, of, of aircraft and the spotting. They need the infantry support and those infantry are then carried in, personnel carriers. And so the addition of a uh, fleet of uh, very modern Western tanks to the Ukrainian military is a significant fillip. Um, but it is uh, has to be seen in conjunction with those other deliveries. And so at the beginning of this fight in, in Ukraine, you know there were thousands of tanks, 900 odd on the Ukrainian side, several thousand on the Russian side o- already in place, and they've been fighting incessantly ever since. Um, And losses have been very high, Um, thousands on the Russian side, hundreds on the Ukrainian side. The Ukrainians are only surviving because they're capturing as many as they are from the Russian side and recycling them. And so the question we really have to ask is, you know, what difference does adding, you know, 100, 200, 150 odd, very sophisticated Western tanks to this existing tank brawl, what difference does it make? Um, and that 's going to be interesting, and we don 't really know yet to be honest. I mean the Ukrainians have been very innovative in this area as well, in the way in which they 've been using their armor and this isn 't really what you know the the these fancy leopards and m one abrams are designed for at all. they are classic you know jousting night you know armored night on night vehicles designed for what was imagined to be the cold War battlefield of the eighties right and I, and I think it points to the fact that the the supreme value of these tank deliveries is ultimately political and symbolic, right? That, that they, we've crushed the threshold, the Western powers have been willing to deliver this kind of kit to the Ukrainians. It would be very interesting to see what difference it actually makes on the battlefield.
0: Yeah, among all this debate, there seems to be a consensus that it's the German-produced Leopard tank, as opposed to the US-produced Abrams tank that you mentioned, that would really be the best one for Ukraine to receive. And I guess I was wondering what that consensus exactly consisted of, whether this was an argument about the military merits of that specific machine in question, or is there an underlying economic argument? I mean, is this really an argument about the industrial or logistical ecosystem that services the machines or something about the manufacturing of this specific leopard tank that makes it most suitable for Ukraine?
1: Well, it's a combination of the two. As the as the name suggests, quite self-consciously in the sixties when West Germany was reviving its tank industry after the hiatus of World War II and the defeat, they self-consciously connected to the famous chain of models that were the panther and the tiger. And so when they Germany started building a new tank, it was the leopard. Um, The first Leopard 1s came out in the 60s and the Leopard 2 that we're talking about now is a late 1970s, early 1980s um, uh, weapon. They're reckoned to offer the best combination of firepower, armoured protection and technological sophistication. And that's what you're looking for in a tank is a kind of blend, a cocktail of these different attributes. Um, So what is it that really makes a tank more or less popular? Um, One issue is uh, fuel consumption. So the Leopard is a classic diesel-driven vehicle, very, very powerful diesel, 1500 horsepower, something like that. The M1 Abrams is a turbine, um, which consumes a huge amount of kerosene, not regular diesel fuel. According to American estimates, it consumes about 80% more gas than, than a Leopard would, which in a constrained logistical situation like the Ukrainian one is a huge disadvantage to using the M1 Abrams. Um the, the leopard has got a good combination of striking power and armor. It has good fire control, and this is the crucial thing. Can you fire? Do you have to do you have to stop and halt and park the tank to fire accurately? Because if you do, of course, you become much more vulnerable because you become a target and you have to slow down and find a position. The leopard, like the M1 Abrams, has highly sophisticated fire control, which means it can hit targets of about two square meters at you know thousands of meters range with very high degrees of reliability so it can really put shells on target even whilst moving around um what it lacks and this is significant is much combat experience um this is a tank that's been widely bought and trialed and troops around the world have trained in it but it doesn't have actually that much combat experience it wasn't deployed in the Iraq wars of the 90s and the early 2000s because germany didn't put troops in harm's way in those conflicts um, And when the Turks did deploy the leopard model um, that um, we are going to be delivering to the uh, Ukrainians, which is the 2A4, when they deployed that in the fight against ISIS, um, it it didn't do very well. It It was actually a bit of a scandal between the Turks and the Germans. At least one Turkish crew paid with their lives uh maybe in the order of nine to ten leopards were destroyed or immobilized by various types of anti-tank grenade improvised explosive device the germans answer is well this is not a weapon designed for that kind of close quarters fighting the turkish didn't deploy enough infantry around it to give it the protection it needs in other words they became sitting ducks a little bit like the russian tanks have become sitting ducks in the fight with ukraine um but there's Questions I think, to be asked about the armored strength of the of the panther, whether it will stand up to modern anti tank rounds, in other words there 's going to be losses. These things are not wonder weapons it isn 't going to be like the m one Abrams against the iraq's tanks in the 1990s where they destroyed hundreds if not thousands, of Iraqi tanks with zero american losses and one of the issues about the leopard is how how it 's lighter than the m one abrams it, it It should go well, in other words, in off road terrain. But it's heavier than the tolerance of most Ukrainian bridges, and so the, there are serious issues I think about how it's going to be deployed. And, and given its immobility across rivers, whether or not you know it's, the lines of attack will be too predictable, the Ukrainians don't care. You know they just want Western high-quality armored vehicles delivered to them on a plate, and they've achieved that. Um, they're not, like I've said, this is this is not going to be the decisive weapon one way or the other. It's It's icing on the cake as far as they're concerned. It will certainly help.
0: So it seems like right now, this military policy of arming Ukraine has also created an industrial opportunity or an opportunity for industrial policy. I mean, all of a sudden, Europe wants and needs a lot more weapons, including now to backfill all the weapons from various European countries that, that will be going to Ukraine. Um, Yeah. And it strikes me that Germany, given what you just described about this leopard tank could profit from that opportunity, you know, to, to provide all these new weapons that, that, that Europe needs if it committed to quickly ramping up production for export. But at the same time, it seems like there's this ambivalence in Germany, almost like a, a reluctance to kind of, make this an explicit policy, an industrial policy to benefit its arms manufacturers. I mean, is that an accurate description of sort of Germans' relationship to that policy? And if they are so reluctant, who might profit instead? Could Americans kind of swoop in to take Germany's European customers away from it?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the German military industrial complex, such as it is nowadays, is a kind of caricature of Germany's Macroeconomic policy starts in general, right? So they 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 are in the top five of global weapons producers, but famously have an, an army that that wastes a huge amount, like $40 billion, 40 billion euros worth of a budget, to achieve virtually no fighting power. And so the the German military industrial complex essentially lives through exports. And that, so they already have, they always have. And this is, has, uh, you know, created huge tensions politically because Germany has very stringent conditions on the sort of countries it will sell them to. So, for instance, there was a very juicy contract for leopards on offer from the Saudis, and the German government vetoed it because of their involvement in the war in war in Yemen. Um, Rheinmetall is certainly doing very well out of the war. Um, its stock is is way up. If you'd invested in European armament stock um, this last year, you would have doubled your money um and its profits are booming um its profits you know it's a big company Ryan Mattel. it has about 25,000 employees the majority of them don't work in armaments though that's as it were its trade name they you know they do car supply components highly sophisticated integration of technology and engineering all those sorts of things that they're, they're sort of a, a one-stop shop high-tech engineering company very very sophisticated steel and foundry operations that kind of thing um and so they will certainly do well out of this. They, they in fact, estimate that, that it's going to be ammunition that will really be the, the big seller um, because that gets consumed. Um, Ryan Mattel says they, they have um, 139 leopard tanks that they would be in a position to deliver to Ukraine relatively quickly. Um, of which 51 are of the Leopard 2. I mean, 88 are of Leopard 1 vintage, which seems sort of implausible that the Ukrainians would want those. They're very very out of date. Um, And they think they could probably produce about 30 of the Leopard 2A4 tanks um, by April or May. One shouldn't overestimate the size of the tank business. I, I was quite surprised to discover how, how cheap they are. I mean, you can have a bog-standard T-72, which is the the standard weapon of the Soviet-derived tank fleets, for as little as half a million dollars will buy you a a new T-72. And a sophisticated modern Western tank, not an M1 Abrams, but a Leopard or a late-model Russian tank, will set you back between 5 and $10 million um, per unit. And so... This, we're not talking aircraft here we're not talking super sophisticated you know f35s or something like that which which run into you know vastly greater sums for for one of those so even if you sold the ukrainians you know a fleet of 100 you'd be looking at a deal of about you know half a billion dollars something like that which which is not going to you know make or break uh, a corporations or it would only it would only matter to a corporation that was fairly medium sized to start with this the tanks by themselves are not not huge business.
0: We'll take a break here, but we'll be right back to continue talking about tanks. Hi, this show is sponsored by better help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest and it has to do with uh, little league. My son is on a uh, little league baseball team here in Berlin and the coach is he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, Pretty regularly, I'm called out by this coach in in, in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me, and I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and and, and and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com ones, twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash ones, twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Okay, we're back, and we're still talking about tanks. So this very protracted debate about providing tanks to Ukraine, all of this diplomacy that was happening between various governments about providing these tanks, it got me wondering, why aren't there other sort of private sector financial solutions to the kind of problem that Ukraine is facing, you know, of procuring military equipment? I mean, we're talking about a country whose existence is at stake, and other neighboring countries have also declared, you know, this threat from Russia to be a vital national interest of their own. So I I'd imagine there are just kind of few limits to the spending they'd be prepared to undertake to get their hands on the necessary military equipment. So if Germany was being intransigent these you know, past couple of weeks, reluctant to provide military equipment, why don't kind of other private manufacturers step in to innovate, develop customized tanks maybe for this kind of war? I mean, what are the bottlenecks to innovation in this kind of situation?
1: I think, I mean, it's a fascinating question, it really, got, really got me sort of scurrying around to some corners of the internet I didn't expect to end up in. Um, I mean, um, I mean, first of all, though you're absolutely right, Ukraine's situation is desperate. It's desperate in several different respects at once, right? So it's not just struggling on the battlefield, it's also struggling for economic and financial survival. So Ukraine is not an actor with an unlimited budget. Um, you know, as much, as much as you might want to adopt a sort of Keynesian position that they can afford anything they can do, they are powerfully constrained by financing, by getting hands-on dollars and, and funding, other than in the official channels of the, of the aid programmes coming from the United States and Europe and, and, and their friends. So there is, in fact, a very lively Ukrainian private arms purchasing operation going on, uh, animated by the Ukrainian government itself and by a lively undergrowth of private arms dealers or would-be arms dealers who sent the chance of an opportunity here, but it is um, two orders of magnitude smaller than the you know the big national programs being announced by the US. So I think the State Department has authorized in the order of about three hundred million dollars worth of private-led arms deals for Ukraine. So that is you know Ukrainian government managed throwing through private channels to brokers who then, for instance, have you know scurried up uh, a big consignment of former Soviet ammunition somewhere or you know some tanks in Bulgaria that might be available for purchase and those deals are being brokered by private dealers the American government machinery is being very expeditious in issuing new licenses to people that want to make those kind of deals. And um, the market is there, but it's three hundred million as opposed to thirty billion, right? So it's it's one percent of the scale of the effort being made at the national level. Um, why is why this disproportion? Because fundamentally, the armaments business is a government-controlled business. It's a government-controlled private business. It is the military-industrial complex, right? This weird and Sort of amalgam of government money for the greatest interests of state national security flowing into unambiguously private profit making profit incentivized businesses by way of middlemen uh, and middlewomen um, intermediaries that that you know charge a commission in between and and that that business is 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 very tightly regulated um, for something politically visible like this. That doesn't mean that there isn't an undergrowth, but for the big deals, it's quite tightly regulated. You need end-user certificates. You need to know where the stuff is going. You need to know where it's coming from. The American State Department apparently will will engage in a degree of leeway where as long as you're honest with them about the the, the channels through which you intend to move the stuff, they don't mind you issuing false end-user certificates to people you're buying it from. Uh, But you have to be honest with them about the channel it's going through. So you can tell the Bulgarians it's going to Poland when everyone knows it's going to Ukraine. But as long as you tell the Americans it's going to Ukraine, ultimately you're not going to get prosecuted on the issue of development you know if you're going to really incentivize big corporations to do large scale r&d you have to wave billions of dollars in their direction right and you you have to be confident also if you're the corporation so pfizer was very reluctant to take operation warp speed money that you know what the time horizon is for the development project, that you can get the thing done in time for there to be a market, and that once you've done it, there will be a follow-on market, because making the first 10 or 100 of a new tank is ruinously expensive, and you don't really begin to make any profits till they're making 1,000 or 2,000 of them. So the initial contract you would want to be done on like a cost-plus basis, and then you would roll it off. So you need all of that kind of security in place, because there is the profit incentive to develop armoured vehicles, but... But you would need the promise, and the, the, the horrible fact is that you would need the promise that this war in its current form is going to go on for long enough to warrant you making that investment. There's another wrinkle to this. It's a really fascinating story because what the Ukrainians preeminently want is Soviet-derived designs because that's what their military are set up to use. The Russians can see them coming a mile away. So there is a shadow war going on between Ukrainian arms purchasers and their facilitators and Russian counter-arms purchasers who, whenever they see... The Ukrainians about to do a deal for, you know, some surplus Soviet era ammunition, swoop on the deal and outbid them. So this kind of shadow war is going on beneath the surface. All of it, however, is secondary to the big, essentially American to Ukrainian deals and the ones being brokered with the European government. Because that's where the big money is going to flow.
0: Just a follow up question on the financing that you mentioned at the start of your answer here. I mean, when a country's existence is at stake does that open up new kind of financial possibilities? I mean, can you, can a country that's very desperate, can it mortgage its future in a way? Do financiers kind of crop up to like, kind of come up with creative ways of financing under such desperate circumstances? Or do they kind of just find all the avenues close on them when they're really in this kind of desperate situation?
1: I mean, the basic logic is that of distressed borrowers everywhere, right? The, the more desperate you are, the harder it is to get the credit because the creditor can see you're desperate, and so a desperate person is not somebody you lend to. The person you want to lend to is somebody who doesn't really need your money, right? Um, so the situation deteriorates. Everyone can see how serious Ukraine's financial circumstances are. are. And, as, and as I was saying, they are involved also for in an economic and social struggle for survival, not just a military struggle for survival. And uh, inflationary mechanisms of finance will undermine the home front in a serious way, and they're extremely cognizant of that. Um, They're also cognizant of the fact that they can get aid from the outside, and that is essentially what they are gambling on, right? That the aid will be forthcoming, it will come from the outside, and therefore they can finance it without destabilizing the home front. In extreme extremists, you, you get the sort of brutal deals that we've seen in the African wars of the 90s and the early 2000s where arms dealers take as collateral or even just as a form of payment, you know, the product of diamond mines, which then become the blood diamonds. So one way of collateralizing a deal like this is to give an arms dealer an interest in a commodity that is, you know, truly fungible. Um, And Mm. uh, those are the sorts of deals that we've seen across across Africa in the 90s and the 2000s.
0: Yeah, okay, that is what I was wondering, whether they're kind of subprime lenders, you oh, know, yeah. who are yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. there to kind of repossess <laughs> yeah. the country in a way. Yeah. Yeah. You, Ukraine is not quite kind of... in
1: that situation. I mean, given okay. given its superprime backing, um, it's hoping <laughs> it doesn't find itself in that situation.
0: Well, finally, I wanted to ask about something you also mentioned in passing, and that's the symbolic significance of tanks. and. I guess also the material effects that symbolism can have in a war. It does seem like the discussion around these tanks and the kind of amount of oxygen that discussion took up in our politics for this past week, yeah, it just seems to have some added meaning for the participants in this policy discussion beyond their military capabilities, strictly defined. Is that what people are talking about when they refer to the escalatory potential of providing tanks in the Ukraine war that the tank signifies something more than you know what you described as pretty marginal improvements that it would provide on the battlefield.
1: I think that's I think that's right. I mean, they have, for in their you know century of deployment, been always shock and awe weapons. I mean, it's it must be an absolutely terrifying thing to be an infantryman in a trench with a with a tank rolling towards you. It's difficult to imagine, you know, amongst the various horrors of war, having your body smashed to a pulp um by a tank must be one of the most terrifying things um that 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 people in combat face. Um it's not by accident, I think, that so many of the memorials to World War II feature tanks. If you think about the Soviet war memorials in Berlin on Unter den Linden, that they have T-34s um uh, uh, on them. Not not pictures of soldiers, not not statues of soldiers, um, but but just the tank. Um, many allied war memorials in you know on the western front in, in normandy or on the on the route to germany have have um rusting you know sherman's uh, dotting dotting the way um so they are they're kind of like the man in the man in armor right the knight in armor of the of the modern era um we know there are men inside and in vulnerable flesh that can be burned and crushed uh, and torn to pieces but but at that moment they are Men, overwhelmingly men, in an, in an armored vehicle, uh, and that vehicle then stands in. But it's, total, it's distorting. It's distorting in a double sense, right? It's distorting because then one tends to identify, as I, as I just have in a sense, with the vulnerable human flesh that faces these vehicles. And in the Ukrainian case, what we've seen is this extraordinary identification, this extraordinary potency of the story of the Ukrainian use of anti tank missiles. Where you have a you know a bunch of fighters with a missile that launch this at the tank and then the tank explodes and there's a sort of cheer and you see this also in ISIS videos of the same sort of thing right there's this there's this um, human against machine kind of drama that is enacted, which is which is totally distorting of what's actually been going on in the Ukrainian war because the Ukrainians have got tanks and used them extensively and it's not as though we are now finally supplying them with tanks they you know previously we're fighting just with rockets against russian tanks it's also distorting in the sense that many tanks now fire rockets at other tanks <laughs> um, so it isn't just you know the, the infantry rocket combination versus the tank is is not an accurate description of what's been going on there and so we, as we're saying we're just adding some western tanks to an existing ukrainian tank fleet and the, the second thing is that i think it's widely agreed that the main killer in modern warfare, really from World War One onwards and before, but still today, is artillery, whether it's High Mars, whether it's rocket artillery, or whether it's uh, or conventional, you know, howitzers, whether they're on tracks or not, 155 millimeter howitzers. I mean, they are actually doing most of the killing. Um, and people aren't putting artillery pieces on monuments, right? They're, they are, as it were, the unsung heroes is perhaps the right word, perhaps not, of, of this war. Um, And to my mind, therefore, we should not anticipate that the deployment of these tanks will have the same impact as the deployment of HIMARS did, the rocket artillery system, um, which for a while at least really quite fundamentally changed the momentum of the front because the Russians had not adjusted to the range of this very precise weapon. Um, And it's possible that in the coming year, the deployment of, you know, army tactical missile systems, this ATACMS system, which has much longer range, um, could make a more dramatic uh, impression on the battlefield than this small fleet of tanks that we've finally approved.
0: Okay, we will leave the conversation there for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos, it is produced by Laura Rossbrow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TOOZE at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at OnesandTwosPod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.